Broadcasting from deep in the Eublifaris galaxy, on a small planet called Gekonia, east of the albino hills and south of the raging leucistic river, comes the one, the only, Gecko Nation Radio. Good evening, everybody. Today is Sunday, August 24th, 2014. And uh, I'm going to start the show by saying that tonight um, we're going to be talking about some controversial uh, recent events in the world of herpeticulture. And uh, I want to make it clear to everyone that Gecko Nation Radio supports both U.S. ARC and Herp Alliance. And uh, going forward, I want everybody to know that uh, tonight's show is going to reflect varying opinions on uh, these recent current events. And um, it's up to you all of you guys to decide how you feel about certain things. And I respect everybody's opinions out there, of course. And uh, I try to keep things as fair and balanced as I can uh, here on Gecko Nation Radio. Uh, so I hope you guys can uh, benefit from this information tonight. And I'm also going to be posting in the chat room um, links that you guys will find useful to some of this, uh, these current events, okay? And uh, tonight I am uh, going to be joined by Andrew Wyatt and Erica Walsh from Herp Alliance in the beginning segment of the show. And then later on in the show, we're going to be talking with James Tinsel from Tremendous Tricolors. So I think you guys will like that. He's got some incredible uh, tricolors, milk snakes and king snakes that he's been selectively breeding. They don't look anything like they used to um, as far as wild types. They, he's got some incredible, like, stripes and jungle patterns and stuff I've never even seen before. So hope you guys uh, will like that. But before we get started, I want to thank our amazing sponsors. Gecko Nation Radio would not be possible without its sponsors. So check this out. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by Reptiles Express is the absolute best live animal shipping company with great low rates. Debbie is the queen of customer service and will make sure your precious cargo gets to where it needs to. They also have a wide array of shipping supplies from deli cups, snake bags, heat packs, and more. Visit reptilesexpress.com and become a member today. Longhorn Geckos is a father and son collaboration. Daryl and Kate Burton specialize in the best supertangelos, pastel raptors, white and yellows, and really nice wild types. Follow them on Facebook at Longhorn Geckos and on their new website coming soon. Ohio Gecko is famous for amazing tangerines, snows, and other very unique leopard gecko projects. Thad also has some incredible fat tail morphs available from stingers to starbursts. Visit him online at ohiogecko.com and at expos in the northeast. He is also the owner of geckoforums.net. Dale's Bearded Dragons is your one-stop source for any reptile supply products that you may need from Exoterra, Zoomed, Rapashi, Repcal, Fluker, and much, much more, and all at 20 to 50% cheaper than your local pet store or big chain pet store. They are also the biggest reptile supply distributor at most of the Northeast Expos. 
contact them directly online at dalesbeardeddragons.com or message me on Facebook and I'll put you in touch with the owner. And if you're looking for quality food for your dubia roaches, crickets, mealworms, and superworms, look no further than MS2 Premium Insect Chow. Made with reptiles in mind, it contains no dog food, cat food, or chicken mash. Using only vegetable proteins and high-quality ingredients, MS2 Premium Insect Chow will have your feeders making a beeline for it. Contact ms2ent.weebly.com or it can also be purchased at Rainbow Mealworms and AB Dragons. All right, folks, we are back, and uh, I'm not going to waste any time. I'm going to go ahead and bring on Andrew and Erica. Andrew, Erica, you are live on Declamation Radio. How are you? Very well, thanks, David. How are you? Doing great, great. Andrew, you there? Yeah, I'm here, too. Uh, Good evening to the Gecko Nation. Thank you very much for coming on, both of you. I really appreciate it. Um, Lots going on out there this week. On Wednesday, we've seen the announcement from PJAC that uh, Ed Sayers uh, is their new lead guy. Um, Would you you guys like to weigh in on that and also talk about what's going on with Herp Alliance? Well, before we get too deep into it, um, I just wanted to to say that... um, uh, you know, we are going to talk about some controversial uh, issues this evening, um, and I just want to make it clear uh, to everyone that uh, I am a supporter of USR, the United States Association of Reptile Keepers. After all, I am the, the uh, founding principal uh, member of the organization and spent five years uh, building it and putting it in a position that it could potentially make a distri- difference. So I wish nothing but the best for U.S. ARC. However, however, I am not and have never been a big fan of the big pet industry uh, that is represented by PJAC. And anybody that is familiar with my record and uh, my writings uh, knows that I've been warning uh, the industry, the reptile industry, about PJAC and uh, potential conflicts of interest uh, that are inherent in PJAC and why that was not a good thing for herpetoculture. And so uh, I just wanted to get that out there before we get uh, deeper into the conversation. Okay, absolutely, Andrew. Um, I'm going to let you just, you know, speak, on, uh, speak your mind here tonight because I'll be honest with you, I really haven't formed my own opinions about everything yet. I'm kind of just still taking everything in and uh, doing my own research I uh, shared a few links for the folks in the chat room to uh, follow and read up on as well. And, um, you know, I, I want to I believe that these people have the reptile industry and the animal industry and our, you know, our best interest in mind. I want to believe that. But, I mean, I also know that there's a lot of hoops that organizations have to jump through and a lot of favors have to be done, backdoor stuff. And there's a, it's a big, complicated process, you know, legally to get anything done today. And, you know, what we see on the front page of things is just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much stuff that we don't know or, you know, we'll never know. So why don't you enlighten us a little bit and, um, you know, especially for people that don't really know the history of everything, uh, enlighten us on what's what's going on and how this could affect us, perhaps. Well, we we might not have enough time to get into, I mean, this is a, a long and storied history 
this has been developing from since even before I was intimately involved uh, uh, in the inter- uh, industry as a leader. Uh, you know, Andrew, so we're talking about going questions. back a decade. Okay, I can give you guys up to 40 minutes if you like. Just okay. So, so, so we're right. so we're talking about going back, you know, um, more than a decade. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, but what I would encourage people to do, to do that, though. we don't have to go back yeah. that far. You know? I understand. So what I would encourage people to do is to go to uh, usherp.org, usherp.org, and read some of the things that we've just recently written. It really mm-hmm. fills in the, the backstory in detail so that you can understand uh, what has taken place um, why it has taken place, and some of the implications uh, for the future. Of course, we're going to touch on some things tonight, but if you really want to, to dig into it and understand it, I would highly suggest you go back and read that stuff. Can I, can I just jump in here, Andrew? Mm-hmm. Uh, go ahead, Erica. Uh, I just wanted to uh, provide just a, a minute of context here because you may have listeners who aren't aware of exactly what we're talking about here, and that is mm-hmm. that the um, Pet Industry Joint Advisory Council um, last year, they let go their president and CEO since 2010, uh, Mike Canning, and they announced it, it, they've had their chairman of the board running. I think uh, Kenneth O has been running as, as filler president since that time, and they announced on Wednesday that the new president is Edwin Sayers. Uh, Edwin Sayers, just for brief history, has spent uh, the last 10 years, or almost the last 10 years, as the president and CEO of the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. But his history, his, his resume, is not limited to those last 10 years. This is a man who spent the last four decades, his entire career, in the animal rights industry. So we now have, as the president and CEO of PJAC, um, an animal rights activist for his entire adult career. And Andrew, I didn't right. mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, you didn't cut me off. I was, uh, I was about done. I, what, the only thing I would add to that as far as it, it really pertains to uh, the, the gecko nation, the reptile nation, herpeticulture in general, is the fact that he has a longstanding um, uh, policy against owning reptiles as pets or owning reptiles, period. So, um, you know, and and if you look at the the piece that we wrote yesterday, um, you'll see that there's a link to a letter uh, that was put out through the Hunt Corporation, the, the biggest puppy mill operator in the country or the biggest puppy mill broker in the country, um, they produce about 90,000 puppies a year. Um, they, they put out a statement uh, uh, from the corporation, but they also had an open letter uh, from Ed Sayers uh, to uh, anybody who happened to be listening, anybody in the pet industry out there where he tries to, uh, to explain why uh, after conversations with the, the Hunt Corporation, he has seen the light and now has changed uh, all of his four decades of, of uh, uh, animal rights uh, perspective and is now uh, pro-pets. I, I, now, I really can change find that like, hard to believe. Like that, well, if somebody can change like that, what's to say they can't change back? I mean, that's, that's how I see it. Um, that's, that's how I, it concerns me a little bit. Um, you know, if somebody can change their mind that quickly, their alliances can shift 
really quickly. And, um, you know, the, there is a perception that he may be, you know, taking his knowledge of, uh, you know, his past, his past work and helping, you know, using it to help us now. And, I, I mean, I guess we're going to see what happens, right? I mean, what do you think, Andrew? Yeah, I don't think he's a double agent that has had a, a change of heart after four decades in the animal rights industry. Um, he has come in here to do a job, and that is to save the Hunt Corporation uh, because the, there has been puppy mill legislation pushed all around the country. Mike Canning, who was the, the former uh, CEO of PJAC, although he did a great job raising money for PJAC, he was inept, appeared inept in dealing with any of the legislative stuff. And they, PJAC was getting killed at the, the, the local, state, uh, and federal level on every, every uh, puppy mill bill that came up. So I think that, that it seems that they have decided that the only way uh, to save, you know, all these mass producers of puppies is to wrap them in the, the cloak of animal rights and, and uh, you know, somehow claim credit for, uh, for cleaning up puppy mills uh, and uh, legitimizing uh, what the, the Hunt Corporation does. And to do that, they felt their best shot was to hire Ed Sayers, who has, you know, spent four decades and has credibility uh, with the animal rights people, and, and, and they are going to, to make a dramatic shift in the pet industry um, and uh, the priorities and things that they find important. Worst case scenario, just... Andrew. What do you think? Sorry, Eric. What do you, what do you think? No, uh, I was just going to say, what's the worst case scenario with this move? The worst case scenario? Mm-hmm. Well, the worst case scenario for us is that um, that as as we move forward, to to have the you know buy-in from their peers in the animal rights world, uh, that it, you know just about every issue that is important to us about. Uh, being able to to own and keep reptiles and the reptiles of our choice um, is going to be on the table and is going to be a uh, potential bargaining chip. So um, you know, expect expect PJAC instead of to to be uh, standing with us fighting against dangerous animal legislation, against invasive species legislation, against uh, 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 regulation of uh, feeders, uh, you know, any, all of the issues that are important to us, uh, you can believe that PJAC is, is likely to be standing on the other side of the issue. And I'll let, I'll let uh, Erica elaborate a little bit. Okay. Um, and I will. I just wanted to back up, too. I mean, the issue with, with Ed Sayers is not just that, um, you know, even if he claims right now that he's had this change of heart and suddenly the the written policy on the ASPCA website, which is still there, which says, and I'm going to read part of it, but corn snakes, green iguanas, rosy boas, bearded dragons, veiled chameleons, spotted pythons, leopard geckos, and uh, poison dart frogs, ownership of them is bad for the animals, bad for us, and bad for the environment. So even let's assume and give him the benefit of the doubt that suddenly he's seen his light, seen the light, and he understands that his prior positions for the last 40 years have been draconian and unsupported in in facts. Um, you have somebody here who left ASPCA 
amid swirling financial controversies. Um, I mean, Ed Sayers, it's been reported in the New York Times, he resigned because he knew that the board of directors of ASPCA was not going to renew his contract, and they were not going to renew his contract because he was grossly overpaid. At the time he left, he was making $566,000 per year, which was more than twice what Wayne Pacelli of HSUS was making. Um, He had just paid out a $9.3 million settlement to Feld Entertainment, for um, ASPCA being one of multiple plaintiffs, but the principal plaintiff pursuing uh, litigation against Ringling Brothers for alleged mistreatment of elephants when it was later found that his principal witness, ASPCA's key witness, was being paid by the other animal rights crony organizations that came in as plaintiffs. And the $9.3 million in donor monies, by the way, that got paid out to settle that lawsuit don't include probably that much in attorney's fees that ASPCA had already paid. So, you know, and there are more more instances like that. There was, um, he tried to organize a, a, a dog walk in New York, and he ended up paying, the ASPCA board had approved a $125,000 budget for it. They ended up paying the consultant $400,000 for it, and the event netted ASPCA $14,000. So this is a person where even if you take away his ideology, which I think is very, very suspect, you've got somebody who is, surrounded by financial improprieties or questions regarding possible financial improprieties. And so, you know, you mix those two things together. And, you know, the one thing that he did do for ASPCA, he increased donations. He, he was really good at raising money, but he was also really good, apparently, at spending money without um, a little bit recklessly. And so, you know, that's a combination. I don't know what the, the PJAC board was thinking of, when they decided to bring him in, I have spoken to um, confidentially some of the board members, and I, it was by no means a unanimous decision. Um, but mm-hmm. this is a person who comes to head PJAC, who, you know, at a time when um, the right to own animals, and I don't mean just own animals as pets, I mean own animals as business, own animals for food, um, to, you know, to put meals on the tables, to keep meat at a, a, a price that is affordable for all families in America. We are under an unprecedented onslaught of legislation against us. And, and they yeah. chose this person at this point in time. And it's really, I mean, I think that it is a, an appointment that is, uh, was reckless on behalf of PJAC. Um, if you go to their website, if you go to their Facebook page, people from all walks of animal life are outraged by this decision, and I think rightly so. Um, you know, we have seen that NARBC, uh, who, as you are, I'm sure, very well aware, used to have yep. auctions. And, you know, PJAC and USARC were the joint recipients. They immediately said, we are no longer donating to PJAC with this appointment. And I think that's the responsible thing to do. And it may be that Ed Sayers is going to prove us all wrong. It's huge. I, it may be that Ed Sayers is going to prove us wrong, and and but that's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of time <laughs> to figure that out. And so, you know, from our perspective, and I want to echo what Andrew said. I'm a supporter of US Arc. US Arc is mm-hmm. the only uh, trade organization out there that is fighting for the rights of reptile keepers. The only one. Herp Alliance no longer does advocacy. US Arc did file a lawsuit. Andrew and I both said for for a long time a lawsuit needs to be filed, and they stepped up and they did it. Um, but you know, US Arc has also, in 2013, in in their um, in their press release, announced that they were partnering with PJAC on certain issues, and they said that they needed PJAC on those certain issues. And in fact, um, the, what they actually said was US Arc is committed to working closely with PJAC. 
um, and they said they needed them to partner. Um, they reiterated this in 2014 because in their 2014 uh, promo flyer that they have out, which is available on U.S. ARC's website, it says, and I'm going to quote it, U.S. ARC is committed to a working relationship with PJAC concerning the entire pet industry. This is an important connection for the reptile industry and for U.S. ARC stakeholders. PJAC is an established organization dealing with anti-pet legislation, and U.S. ARC will partner with them and make the entire American pet community stronger. And I just feel at this time it is critical, it is mission critical that U.S. ARC and other organizations such as, um, you know, Ship Your Reptiles has pledged their, their allegiance to PJAC as well, and they have a, a micro-donation program with every shipment they make. People like this, leaders in the industry, need to step back and say, wait a minute, don't give your money there. Let's take a wait-and-see approach. We are not part of this. It's up to PJAC to prove it to us right now that they're going to be in it with us. And, you know, PJAC's little summary statements that they've put out there, they're self-serving and pre-prepared statements from the Hunt Corporation and from Ed Sayers. That just doesn't get us there. You know, if there was a time that people needed to stand together, in the reptile community. That time is now. And supporting PJAC when they have made such a controversial decision is the wrong choice. And if PJAC was genuinely in the partnership with USR that has been announced out there, this open communication, then, you know, it's one of two things have happened here. Either USARC knew that this appointment was coming down and they didn't say anything, which would be egregious and which is not what I believe happened, or PJAC hid the ball and didn't tell them in which case this is not a partner with open communication. And we all need to distance ourselves from PJAC now. we got a close well, I think there's, absolutely. I think there's no doubt that they've been hiding the ball, even if you, you look at uh, the, the statements that PJAC made announcing uh, the appointment of uh, Ed Sayers as the new uh, president and CEO. Not once do they, manage, do they mention uh, any connection to the ASPCA. Um, not once, you know. So they've, they've definitely been trying to hide the ball on that. They're not proud of it. They know that it's going to be uh, controversial, but somehow they have decided uh, that it's necessary to sell this, uh, this idea that the, that the people that are producing uh, uh, mass-produced puppies for pet stores in America are not puppy mills and they need to somehow legitimize them and, and Ed Sayers is going to be the guy to spearhead that effort and be able to sell it to, uh, uh, to his animal rights peers. And I suspect that it's going to look a little something like this. They're going to, uh, PJAC has always been known for wanting to create uh, best management practices. My concern in the past has always been that they want to create best management practices that only the biggest interests, only the people they like the most uh, can, uh, uh, can accomplish. That way they, uh, they eliminate all the small players. Only the biggest players are, are left standing. That's always been my problem with them. They want to regulate uh, competitive advantage, competitive business advantage, and, uh, and they basically want to get, uh, uh, get rid of the, the small people that are nickel and diming the big operators. So what I envision happening here is with the input of the rest of the animal rights industry, they are going to come up with a set of best management practices, or, and I think they're already underway with studies at Purdue University and, and, and other things that they're involved with in creating a set of best management practices for these commercial puppy producers. 
what, what has been called in the media and by the animal rights movement, puppy mills, okay? So they're going to cre create a system of best management practices, possibly even some kind of an accreditation system so that the, the suppliers for the Hunt Corporation can become accredited and legitimized while everybody right. else is going to stand on the outside looking in and be regulated right out of business. Next, because what the next step would be is to craft legislation with the help and support of the animal rights people, HSUS, they get behind it, you know, instead of fighting uh, the, the puppy mill, fighting on the other side of the puppy mill issue from the pet industry. They're both on the same side. They've come up with the, this uh, accreditation system. The, the, the Hunt Corporation is uh, accredited. Everybody else isn't. And when, uh, at the end of the day, they pass this legislation with exemptions for uh, the, uh, the PJAC accreditation, and then Hunt is legitimized, everybody else is uh, illegalized, Hunt gets rid of all of their competition and become legitimate, while both sides, the pet industry and the animal rights industry, pat themselves on the back for cleaning up puppy mills, and, uh, and, and it provides a huge platform for fundraising for them. Because I'll tell you what, one thing that uh, Ed Sayers uh, has never been criticized for is his ability to raise huge amounts of money. And um, don't think for a second that wasn't a, a big factor in uh, PJAC's decision to hire them. They've got dollar signs in their eyes. Okay. There's another issue, too, and, that I want to raise here, and that is that um, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, David, but there, PJAC has for quite a long time had a HERP committee, and their HERP committee has involved uh, many leaders in this industry, you know, people who uh, are yeah. large breeders, show promoters, yes. that sort of thing. And one of yep, the major I, things I put that, that link in the group, too. Did you? Okay. Yeah, I, um, the, yeah. Did you put the link to the... Um, the uh, best management practices for rodents that they just put out in September of 2013. No, I'll find. The out. reason I'm, I'm raising definitely put that one too. Okay, the blog that um, that we posted earlier this week, the first blog on Ed Sayers being appointed, um, I provided a copy of the the best management practices that they came up with, so you can get it from there on the Herp Alliance um, website. But one of the problems yeah. with this was, you know, the the a big vulnerability of this industry, uh, which is not such a secret anymore because it's been discussed so thoroughly, um, is our feeder rodents, which do not fall under the Animal Welfare Act currently. Um, HSUS yep. has taken a run at these before, trying to bring these under the umbrella of the Animal Welfare Act, and they have not so far been legislated. Uh, PJAC has been looking at this for a long time. And so we have had extensive conversations with leaders in our industry and people who are big-time reptile producers and big-time rodent producers who have um, had these candid discussions behind closed doors. Um, USARC has participated in those. And now all of that information is vested with PJAC under the um, direction of Ed Sayers. And so in, in September 2013, they came out with best management practices. But, you know, uh, Andrew just outlined a situation about accreditation for uh, puppy producers, commercial puppy producers, high-volume puppy producers. If a similar best management practices and accreditation scenario is implemented with respect to feeder rodents, what it's going to do, it's going to drive all the small feeder rodent producers out of business. 
it's going to make the cost to feed our rodents the subject of what will be virtually a monopoly for the big-time producers that can afford to get accredited by whatever system PJAC might come up with, and it's going to make the cost of owning reptiles cost prohibitive because when we can't afford to feed our animals anymore, we can't afford to keep and breed them, can we? And this would be a huge feather in the cap of the animal rights industry who never wanted us to have reptiles anyway. Um, it would be a huge feather in PJAC's cap because it's going to create an, an income stream for them, and it's going to help them control uh, business for their cronies. And That's for the lucky pick few, the winners and the losers. And the lucky few large producers are going to make a mint off of it. And, uh, this, has and everybody a, else this, has been, this has been a bone of contention and my biggest problem with PJAC since day one. And there's, they've, got, they've got two programs. They've got the what they call NRIP, the National Reptile Improvement Program, and uh, then the, 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 they've worked on kind of a rodent version of NRIP, but then modified that again uh, back in the summer of 2012. But it's basically both are best management practices, one for reptiles and amphibians, one for uh, rodent production. And the, the reason I've had such a big problem with it is not because I don't believe in best management practices, but because of the way it's been couched and the way it is basically going to squeeze out all the medium and small players. Uh, and I have been roundly criticized over the years for not playing nice with PJAC and calling them out on stuff over and over again to the point where people were saying, oh, he's not a team player. Oh, he doesn't play nice with others. Well, you know, the, the, the chickens have come home to roost, and, and now Ed Sayers has got all the intelligence from PJAC and all the information that the reptile industry has fed them about rodent production, about uh, reptile production, about all of it. They're going to know about all of this stuff in detail now and moving forward. So 30 years of intelligence on the pet industry is, is all of a sudden going to be in the hands of Ed Sayers. How do you feel about oh that? God. Not too good, no. <laughs> and these are, and, you know, these are all think... facts, too, folks. Just, right? I mean, this is all factual. There's nothing, there's no embellishment. We have the links. I'm posting the links, and you guys can do this research for yourselves. It's concerning, to say the least. Um, Concerning to say the least. And, you know, let me speak to that for a minute. Um, you know, Herp Alliance is a supporter of U.S. Arc, too. And, you know, people get very uh, bristly when uh, we criticize specific events that have happened or we offer suggestions that are not in line with what U.S. Arc is doing. But just because we support the organization does not mean that we or any individual or any other organization out there needs to swallow hook, line, and sinker and support rah-rah every single thing that they do. Um, that would be very counterproductive. One of the biggest problems in the reptile community, because what we have is a large number of people who are extraordinarily passionate. They're really, really passionate about their animals. They're passionate about conservation. They're passionate about breeding projects. That's what has made this one of the most uh, successful captive breeding projects of all species, is what has happened within the reptile community. However, they get very caught up in I like this person and not that person and this organization and not that organization, and I don't like it that such and such said this and that, and they get caught up in the 14-year-old drama of gossip. 
and they sort of, as a group, tend to not pay enough attention to the actual issues. And we are getting steamrolled on the issues. I mean, we had one victory in Illinois, and since 2012, this is the first victory that we've had. Um, you know, Illinois was a huge win, and it was a huge win that, uh, you know, was worked on for many years by a handful of people. Um, I was one of the people who was assisting with that. Scott um, Ballard from the Illinois Department of Resources, Natural Resources, gets all the credit for doing it. But, um, but you know, this is there is momentum that is being built against us. Lay people don't like us. They don't understand why we want to have reptiles. They don't understand people who like snakes. And, um, you know, we need to take control of that dialogue. We need to take control of the legislatures, and we need to show that we are not the um, high-maintenance deadly predators that HSUS keeps saying that we are, that our animals are also pets, that our animals can also be safer, that statistically, and I think you know that I collect statistics on this all the time, reptiles, uh, large constrictors are safer than dogs, than horses, than cows, than deer, than ants, than mosquitoes. Um, you know, statistically, this is not uh, a demographic of animals in captivity that pose a risk to the public or even to their owners. And, you know, I can even give you statistics using HSUS's own statistics, what they say has happened, and we're still a de minimis risk. De minimis. And by de minimis, I mean hundreds of, a per, of one percentage point. So, you know, but we need to have people, we need to have constituents. Everybody who's listening right now who has a leopard gecko and said they're not trying to, says they're not trying to legislate me, yes, they are. Yes, they are. And look what's happening in West Virginia right now. Um, and so people need to get serious. They need to educate themselves, and they need to learn how to speak about these issues. They need to learn to speak the language of legislators, and they need to learn how to grassroots organize themselves. You know, USARC, when it started, and of course I wasn't involved then, um, was a grassroots organization that Andrew started. And, and back then, um, it was not uh, as sophisticated as it is now. You know, as we have learned about the animal rights opponents, they have learned about us too. You know, you've got Wayne Paselli going on and knows Andrew Wyatt by name. Um, they know what we're going to say. They are trying to take this in pieces now. You know, so sometimes when you see HSUS used to bring one great big mega bill in a state, they now bring it as a dozen tiny little bills, each one with a little piece, and they build on those pieces. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's... You know, in my opinion, U.S. Arc is no longer a job for one person. You know, I, I have met Phil Goss. I like Phil Goss. I think he ha is a, a man of extreme integrity. Um, he is articulate. He is charismatic. He's likable. He presents well. But you know what? He's not an attorney, and he's just one person. And it does seem as though uh, U.S. Arc, you know, in the beginning when there's a change of management, you expect an organization to have some startup hiccups, but eventually you expect it to grow legs and run for itself. And I don't think that uh, Phil Goss can pull this whole freight train by himself. And so people are going to have to get more savvy. Well, well the, Erica, the, the thing we need is we need... Go ahead, Andrew. One of the I'll things that we need ahead. is we need, you know, people who are actual policy experts in areas, in, you know, in a position to do something about it. Okay, and let's use PJAC as an example because... It's likely that in the vacuum of Marshall Myers leaving PJAC, he was the, the founding principal of PJAC and basically ran PJAC for about 30 years. When he resigned in 2010, they hired Mike Canning, who was uh, basically a, 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 a guy from uh, the finance industry. Okay? He knew about credit cards. Uh, he knew about money. And when he came to PJAC, 
he was great at raising money and he was great at cheerleading and rah-rah. He knew nothing about the policy side of it. He knew nothing about the legislative side of it. And he got steamrolled by much more sophisticated opponents in the animal rights world. Okay, so the, 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 the reptile world needs to make sure they don't fall prey to that same kind of mistake because it's likely that this fiasco with Mike Canning at uh, PJAC and the fact that they got mowed down for the last four years is, the, is what gave entry, the collapse of PJAC and gave, gave the opening uh, for the entry of Ed Sayers to, to basically take over. PJAC. And I think that Mike okay. Canning has been quoted in um, various uh, trade journals as saying that the, uh, PJAC was taking a different direction and that there was kind of a different philosophical view happening. And he also hinted that there was a merger in, in the works, which Kenneth O. denied uh, in the same article that, uh, that I have looked at on that issue. So there may be some internal policy changes that have not yet been announced. It certainly sounds that way. But, you know, nonetheless, no one can deny that it's more legislation, it's at more levels, there are more bills, people are running around trying to fight things. You know, virtually the same bill that uh, just passed in West Virginia and uh, in this legislative session, Andrew and I were successful in defeating in 2012 with a gubernatorial veto. Uh, didn't happen this time, though. And, you know, people have to get on the stick about this. People in individual states have got to get more educated on the issues and not just who they like and who's the funniest auctioneer. Okay. And, and, and this, I'm going to pose this to both of you, but first I'd just like to say this. Uh, recently uh, in the gecko community, and we see this in every single uh, community there is, ball pythons and whatever, you, you mentioned it earlier, there's a lot of infighting, drama, and bickering between us, and it's almost, from the outside, it seems like it's divide and conquer tactics, but it's just really just how most, a lot of reptile people are, not most, I'm going to say a lot, but um, for instance, I mean, a really well-known, respected breeder released a a special project that he was working on, and, um, you know, it's just, everybody just didn't like the, the, the marketing approach, I guess, not everybody, but some people, and it was just the way they went after this person was just so unprofessional and, and just so upsetting. And and I, all, the whole time I'm thinking to myself, wow, we have such bigger threats to worry about and people are bickering over the price of a gecko morph or they're bicker, bickering over someone's marketing approach at, that they're doing for their business. People are trying to, you know, tell someone else how to run their business, so to speak. And, and I didn't I didn't care for that. And... I'm the kind of person that likes to think, what is the shortest route to our goal, okay? These little side excursions are distracting us and totally keeping us from getting what we want, and that's the security to enjoy our hobby. So I ask Andrew and you, Erica, what is the shortest route to our goal, and how how can the average reptile hobbyist like myself and people listening to the show, how can we make a difference that will affect us in the positive well, way. Well, let me, say, let me say that I couldn't agree with you more. And especially in this day and age of Facebook and social media, we've gotten to be experts at distracting ourselves. And that's the kind of petty crap that people would rather busy themselves with than facing the hard issues that are in front of us and figuring out ways to, to solve complex problems. 
Nobody really wants to do that. You get you can see it on a, on on your Facebook page. If we post something of uh, importance and that 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 has you know that requires reading and study and you need to understand what's going on, you know, we might have um, you know uh, five Two to three thousand. Five to ten thousand views on it, you know. We'll have more than that because we've got a big page. But you know, say five to ten thousand hits on it, right? Whereas, you know, a, a, a people can argue about, uh, you know, uh, feral cats in the wild and their impact on on wildlife. We put we put together these these quickie memes that will get across, you know, information on feral cats. And um, and although that's an important issue, people will argue about that stuff all day. The pro cat people, the anti cat people, and they will go on and on. We might have two hundred thousand hits on it, you know, and people just arguing about something that you know just crazy, you know. Um, so it, so I understand, but but what people need to do if they want to make a difference is they need to get engaged. They need to start understanding. Um, you know, what it is that's going on. So when their leaders get up and say some bunch of gobbledygook and try to smooth things over and have no idea what they're talking about, they can call bullshit on them, basically, and say, uh, say look, this is the, these are the problems we're facing. How are we going to deal with them? So it's up to the individuals to, to educate themselves and then to get involved, you know, to, to get involved at the grassroots level um, and, uh, you know, make the phone calls, uh, uh, give feedback to to your representatives, not only your congressional representatives, but your trade association representatives. Tell them if you like what they're doing. Tell them if, what you like about what they're doing. Tell them if you don't like what they're doing. Tell them if you think they're missing the point. You know, tell them if you don't think they understand the problem. You know, because it very well could be they don't. You know, so so you need to get involved. You need to get educated. That's the best thing anybody can do for themselves in any situation, whether you're talking about politics on the uh, the, the national level or, you know, um, your your home community or your reptile community, you know. So it's it's the same formula wherever you go. And I will say this, too. Um, the people that are fighting the legislative challenges do need money. So donate to U.S. ARC. You know, donate and feel free to ask the questions you have to ask, you know, because I have been critical of certain things with U.S. ARC. I do think that, you know, <laughs> their first complaint uh, was carelessly written, and it, it caused a month and month delay. Hopefully this most recent are you referring to the Are you referring to the lawsuit? The federal lawsuit, yeah. It, and as it stands right now, I, I think that for anybody who doesn't know, um, U.S. ARC did, uh, once the government filed its initial motion to dismiss. Um, U.S. ARC, in its response, had sought leave to amend, so they sort of acknowledged that their complaint was inadequate and that they could plead better facts, which they then did. Um, the government has filed a second motion to dismiss. U.S. ARC has filed its response. The government has filed its reply. Um, they are waiting now. There was a change of judge uh, last month, so a new judge has been assigned now, and they are awaiting a date for oral arguments. So we are now, what are we, August? So we're eight months into this, and we haven't gotten to the meat of the case yet. Um, and all this time, attorneys and lobbyists and consultants are running up fees. So finally, mm -hmm. at long last, we're going to get to the meat of the case. They're going to need money. U.S. ARC has said that they need money. They, they're they're um, 
legal team has come out and said they're doing it on a specific budget. I don't know why USARC is not declaring what that budget is, but I guarantee you litigation is expensive, so send them money. You know, if NARBC is going to withhold funds from PJAC, go to NARBC shows, participate in their auctions. That money is going to go to USARC. Um, support that cause. That is the only cause you have right now. If you have a local chapter of a legislative organization that's representing the, the uh, community, give money to them too. And educate yourself on the issues. Every person listening right now should know what the state and municipal laws are that govern their keeping of reptiles. If you don't, get out there and find it. If you need help finding it, email us at Herp Alliance. I will help you find what applies to you. Um, Learn that and then start paying attention <clears throat> to the legislature. You know, you can watch the HSUS site and you can see when, um, when ballot initiatives are proposed. Educate yourself on them. If, if we haven't announced them, if USARC hasn't announced them and you hear of something, make everybody aware of it. Let's get the dialogue going. You know, I, um, when I was with USARC and, and last year with Herp Alliance, I analyzed in excess of 460 bills at the state and federal level. And, oh you know, God. that is wow. what we do. I am a lawyer. I am on the federal bar in Illinois, um, and, and I'm on the state bar in Illinois, too. But, you know, learn about these things so that you can enter and engage in the conversation as early as possible. The earlier you can engage, the better your chances of success. People in HERP societies need to be talking about these issues with each other and educating each other. And at every turn that you have, at every opportunity you have, take advantage of opportunities <clears throat> excuse me, to make good press for herpticulture. You know, if you have an animal and you can share facts about an animal, if you can share information sheets, if you can talk about care tips, if you have a website and you can offer educational information on your animal, take advantage of all of that. We need to control the dialogue. Our problem right now is that in this community, um, we have been silent for too long. And you have HSUS out there saying that we've got pythons springing out of the toilets and attacking children while they're drinking lemonade in their backyards. That is I not know. the case. Why are we letting them say that? Right. And, exactly. And I'd like to, I, know, I know we're running out of time and we'll get, we'll get out of your hair, but I'd just like to, to uh, uh, you know, kind of say one more thing in closing. You know, because of the fact that it is looking like the, the, the pet industry will no longer be on our side, so to speak, if they ever were, um, they expect there to be a heavy legislative calendar um, uh, in 2015 um, at the uh, uh, local, state, and federal level um, and uh, look for the, the types of, of things you're going to see is you're going to see dangerous animal legislation you know, classifying all kinds of animals as dangerous and, and banning them from possession at the state level. Um, look for uh, potentially at the, the federal level some kind of regulation of uh, feeder animal production. Um, look for uh, the, the continued um, uh, uh, legislation and regulation regarding um, animals that are potentially invasive species and that the gloves are going to be pretty much off now because you know not only are you are you going to see these things fielded by HSUS uh, ASPCA and their friends you're going to likely see and I may be wrong and I hope I am but you're likely going to see PJAC supporting these initiatives 
So, uh, so they're not going to be on our team. They're not even going to pretend that they're on our team. They're going to pretend like they're on our team long enough to get as many donations as they can, get the new president settled in, and then they're going to go about their business because their business, in, in the big picture, reptiles are a very, very small piece of the pet industry. The, the, the biggest parts are, are um, uh, the mass production of puppies and the sale of dog food. Okay, that's mm-hmm. where the pet industry is going to be focused. And if they end up losing, uh, uh, you know, the support of reptile people, I think maybe, you know, NARBC was, was kicking them somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty to $50,000 a year. That's a drop in the bucket in Ed Sayers' world. Okay, this is a man that raises millions and millions of dollars. So uh, that's not going to bother him much. You know, and uh, mm-hmm. nobody, you, there's nobody left at PJAC that anybody in the reptile industry knows. All the people from the last decade that we've been working with, they're all gone. They're all gone. It's Ed, it's Ed Saris's world now. Unless you know a couple of the people on the board of directors, those are the only people you might recognize. You know, Rolf Hagen from, uh, from Hagen is on the board. Um, John Mack is on the board. Uh, the rest of these folks you probably don't know. Petco, PetSmart, they're on the board. You know them too. But, uh, mm-hmm. but they've made the decision collectively, unless they're, res- unless they're resigning off the board, they've made the decision collectively to hire Ed Sayers. So, and, you know, it's a brave new world. Also on the board is a member of the, a representative of the Hunt Corporation, and um, and I just wanted to add on to that, Andrew, something you said earlier. Hunt Corporation in 2007 shipped 90,000 puppies uh, around the world, not just in the United States. They also ship puppies overseas to Asia, to Europe, to the Middle East. They ship puppies everywhere. Um, and also Petland, who is the largest distributor of the puppies that Hunt Corporation distributes. Those two are also on the board. Uh, you know, until uh, until PJAC has proven to us that they're back in our corner, I think it is incumbent upon every industry leader out there, including USARC and anybody else who's offering to donate money to PJAC to withdraw support until the situation is cleared up. I think this is a drastic time, and drastic times do call for drastic measures, and we cannot trust agencies and, and businesses that are going to partner up with Ed Sayers. Also, okay. I'd like to say that, that everybody needs to make their position clear where they stand on this issue. Don't just say, trust us, it's going to be okay, and you know, keep, uh, keep your opinions and your positions under a cloak of secrecy. Let's hear it. Where do you stand on this? Do you, do you like this? What are your concerns? You know, uh, right. So I, I think everybody should be speaking up. But do your homework first, folks, so you can form an educated opinion. You know, read, read uh, the information, follow the links, spend a little bit of the time, you know, during one night during the week and, uh, you know, do some research so you're not just reading comments on a post on Facebook and, you know, wasting time commenting there. You know what I mean? Um, all right. Read well, on Andrew the, and Erica, thank you. Read on thank the Herp Alliance site. On the Herp Alliance yes. site, read the article that's called Sleeping with the en- Industry or Sleeping with the Enemy. Enemy. Why is PJAC mm-hmm. in bed with animal rights? That will give you a lot of background on what this stuff is all about. Yep, absolutely. All right, thank you, Andrew and Erica, so much for coming on. I really appreciate you giving some of us, uh, giving some of your time to us tonight. Thank you. Thanks so much thank for inviting you. us, David. I appreciate it. Anytime. All right, take care. All right, good, good night. night. All right, bye. Now.
uh, there you have it. Uh, there's um, the uh, the opinion from Herp Alliance. Okay. Um, I'd also gladly welcome uh, US ARC or PJAC. They're more than welcome to have their own time on my show anytime they like for a, a professional interview. Uh, on this show, we don't do ambushes or any kind of uh, you know immature antics. Uh, we, I like to keep uh, the discussions in a mature and uh, class, classy and professional way. So we have to move the show on now, and we're going to go ahead and jump right into the news with Mr. Steve Barker. Good evening, Gekonians. <laughs> hey. <laughs> there you go. All right. Oh, I'm sure right. you have some uh, news for us tonight, right? Oh, yeah. I'm going to start out with a bad story. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Nicki Minaj, while doing her rehearsal for the MTV VMA Awards, one of her dancers was carrying, according to this article, an anaconda. During the rehearsal, Anaconda bites dancer. She was sent to the hospital. Oh, my God. Um, I, I, don't, I, I don't know. I, I don't know why they... I've seen this so many times with dancers with snakes, you know? Yeah, it's it doesn't make it, sense, you know? No, no, not at all. So the snake that, bit her while she was dancing. Yep. That, oh but God. that that leads us to our next story, which is also Nicki Minaj, backup dancer, bit by boa constrictor, not an anaconda. So one article <laughs> says it it was an anaconda. The next article says it was a boa constrictor. Either way, it's bad for, <laughs> for reptiles. It's a bad yeah, it for is. reptiles. Yeah, it right. is. And, and what do you expect? I mean... Your exactly. dancing is fast movements. <laughs> so, yeah, snakes, snakes don't on. like that. Can't they make, can't they make fake looking snakes now that dancers can throw around or something? You know, I mean. Yeah, you I would think so. I used to have some pretty realistic ones when I was a kid. So those rubber snakes, you know. Yeah. I don't need to yeah. use live ones. <laughs> oh man. All right, and that also leads us into. <clears throat> Our next story in the UK, the arrival of three baby anacondas at the West Midland Safari Park is being heralded as a miraculous virgin birth. It's hmm. believed they are the first snakes of this of their kind ever to be born in captivity without any help at all from a male. Wow, interesting. Yeah. So that's that's really cool. Three baby Perfect anacondas. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm waiting oh. for mine to start doing it. <laughs> <laughs> don't hold your breath. <laughs> What's that? I said, don't hold your breath, right? Oh yeah, really. <clears throat> oh man. All right. That's cool. Yeah, it is cool. Our next story is. How do lizards regrow their tails? And this comes from Reptile Magazines. Scientists have studied 
the genes that turn that are turned on in green anoles when it loses its, its tail. When the scientists dis- what the scientists discovered is that when the lizard loses its tail, genes, including genes or genes, you, three three hundred twenty six genes are turned on in specific region of the tail to regenerate, including genes utilized for embryonic development, wound healing and response to hormonal signals. And it, it, it is hoped that this discovery will help with spinal cord injuries, birth defects, and treatment of diseases such as arthritis. Interesting. That's cool. Yeah. yeah I, I saw what that I, article. I didn't get a chance to read it, but I saw it. Yeah, what I thought was cool was the embryonic development Mm-hmm. genes that are used, you know, for embryonic developments. That's pretty cool. So kind of like hopefully cells, down so. the road it will help people. Yeah. Well, I think I think they're making secret super soldiers in a lab that can regrow their arms anyway. So, um, you know, <laughs> don't, don't, <laughs> yeah. make, don't think you may see it sooner than you think. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if they're talking about that now, I just think that a lot of this technology – that's suppressed from us maybe twenty by twenty years or so. I don't know, whatever it is. I mean, it's some, somewhere it's got to exist, which is probably pretty fascinating. But uh, well, that's interesting. Is that is yeah. that all you had for us? As far yep, as that was our la- our last story. Last one. Okay, let's uh, let's take a little. Let's, I'm going to go uh, fire up the flux capacitor, and we're going to take a little trip <laughs> in time. <laughs> all right. All right, March 10th, 1938, horned reptile found in field near Newberry, and this is in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. A horned snake, rare in this section, was displayed in a quart bottle on the streets of Newberry by Ben F. Melton of Newberry, who found the snake while plowing in a field near the city. The poisonous reptile which does not bite but stings instead appeared to be lively (laughs) in captivity it appeared to be about six months old and was about 18 inches in length and the stinger hard as a rock was more than a half inch in length well, that sounds March. like an alien if i ever heard (laughs) (laughs) march i don't know of any 1938. That is crazy. Where do you? How did you think that one? Jeez, that's crazy. I I I don't know. I just I randomly search. You know, you know, I might type in reptile, snake, lizard, anything, and then put it into a time period and see what I can find. And that that was one that I came up with, and it came out of the Herald Journal. I wonder if it's still on display somewhere in that town, perhaps. Anybody living in that oh, area should go check yeah, it out. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> right? I mean, geez, what if it was uh, some kind of weird mutant creature that was discovered? You never know. I'm sure it's just something common that they're mistaking for something else, but, you know, who knows? Yeah. That's that's weird. Well, i got to say, Steve, I'm seeing some of the pictures you've been posting lately of your snakes and geckos. You're, you're producing some mighty fine animals this year. Yeah, I'm liking them. My pictures yeah, are getting well, better too. 
<laughs> oh yes, you got a good timer or what? No, I, I'm just messing with lighting and background. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah they look great. Really nice, real professional. Cool. Thank you. All right, cool. Well, thanks a lot for the news tonight. And uh, uh, before you go, you want to give us your feeling on the recent events with uh, PJAC, or you want to not touch it? Um, I'm kind of up in the air, but I'm really nervous about it. Yeah, I know. Um, That's how I feel. Yeah, the the rodent thing I I thought about years ago would be a a, a perfect target. Mm-hmm. For snake keepers, because right. if they can go after that, we're done. You know, yeah. pretty much done. I know. Right. If they make it illegal to breed rodents on your own and you can't yeah. get them anywhere, that's it. I mean, what are you going to do? Feed your uh, snakes hot dogs? I mean, it's just not going to work. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I know. Maybe you can convert some to eat hot dogs. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Really. <laughs> and, and rodents are, are aren't cheap now, you know, really. Right, and right. imagine after, you know, you take out all the competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, snake keepers would be, would be far and few between. Yeah, it'd be like a totally illegal underground operation if it if it could even be done. Um, yeah, it's going to be harder and harder to even break laws in the future with all the surveillance technology and equipment everywhere. Uh, so, you know, they've, they're seeing crime rates drop drastically all across the nation, yet, uh, you know, security is heightened in a lot of areas. It's just, it doesn't make sense, but I don't know. I think we're, in, we're, we're living in very interesting times, folks, and, you know, don't ever yeah. take it for granted. You're going to see some pretty interesting things happen, I think. But, uh, all right, yeah. Steve, well, I just want to thank you very much for the news, of course, and uh, I'm sure you've had a few information so people can find you out there. Check me out on Facebook and YouTube under BC Barker Creations. Awesome. All right, we'll see you next week, bud. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, take care. All right, folks, we are at the halfway point of the show. I'm going to go ahead and play our second sponsor plug, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk with James Tintle from Tremendous tri-colors. If you guys haven't seen what James is working on, you have not seen Milk Snakes. Check him out on his Facebook page. I'll provide a link during the break. Uh, and hang tight, folks. We'll be back for another hour of awesome Gecko Nation Radio. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by Gecko Boa Reptiles is your source for the highest quality leopard gecko morphs and wild types, from white and yellows to radars, amazing tremper morphs, and rare subspecies. John is a world-class breeder and extremely knowledgeable. If you're looking for something truly special in geckos, contact John Scarborough at geckoboa.com and on Facebook. Rainbow Mealworms is the largest worm grower in the world and selling to the public since 1956. If you need the highest quality mealworms, superworms, and crickets for your pets, contact them at www.rainbowmealworms.net. Ron Tremper is the biggest contributor to leopard gecko morph making, known worldwide for his amazing examples of living art. 
You can now download his Leopard Gecko Care app, his Morph Encyclopedia app called Leopard Gecko Pro, and visit his site, leopardgecko.com, to see where morphs are made. GiantLeopardGecko.com specializes in giant and supergiant leopard geckos with a focus on selectively bred exceptional lines of many different morph combinations, including high-end African fat tails and crested geckos. With over 17 years of experience in herpetoculture, Keith Kiggins brings you quality, integrity, and value. Check out GiantLeopardGecko.com on the web and on Facebook. Supreme Gecko is a great source for crested geckos, day geckos, and other species, including micro geckos. Wally Kern is a top-notch breeder and gecko enthusiast. Visit SupremeGecko.com for his available animals and supplies. ABDragons.com is your source for the highest quality doobie roaches. Whether you're starting a colony of your own or just need feeders for your insect-eating herps, abdragons.com can't be beat in quality or price. They are also a huge distributor of FlexWatt reptile heat tape and have very competitive pricing. Check out abdragons.com online and on Facebook. All right, we are back, folks. And I just want to remind everybody that uh, also tonight, uh, well, up until September 30th, uh, our sponsor, GiantLeopardGecko.com, is giving listeners uh, 20 to 25% off uh, savings on any geckos available. So use the code GNR2014 and contact Keith Kagans at GiantLeopardGecko.com. Uh, it's going to run out in about a month, folks, a little over a month. So uh, take advantage. He's got some incredible uh, geckos, uh, cresteds, Leopards, really nice stuff. Ron Tremperline stuff, beautiful. Big, large, giant too, if you like giant-sized geckos. Also, uh, standing discount, uh, 5% off with uh, AB Dragons on your Dubia Roaches, the highest quality Dubia Roaches, of course. Use the code GECKO at checkout. You're going to get 5% off your order. All right, don't forget about that. Also mention Gecko Nation Radio to any of our, uh, our sponsors, and they'll take care of you. We're very proud to have them as sponsors of the show. And uh, they love our listeners. All right. And one last thing before we bring James on, I just want to make everyone aware of this important fact. If you are interested in geckos and other uh, reptile-related radio, check out this real quick. Did you know that since 2006, there's been a treasure trove of history and information on leopard geckos and other species? Well, Gecko Forums is the most extensive database of leopard gecko history on the web right now. Take a look and delve into the past, present, and future of this great community. The biggest contributors, breeders, and hobbyists have left their mark there. Now it's your turn. Look, learn, and post away. Need a place to post animals for sale? Look no further. Visit geckoforums.net and become a member today. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to be the official radio show associated with Gecko Forums. Herpentime Radio is my inspiration for GNR. Justin and JD do a terrific show every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern and have an amazing archive of shows available for download. Visit them at blogtalkradio.com slash herpentime and on Facebook. All right, folks, we're going to go ahead and bring on James Tennell of Tremendous Tricolors. James, you are live on Gecko Nation Radio. How you doing, David? Hey, good to have you with us, James. How's everything going over there? Well, going pretty good. It's Florida. It's hot, it's wet, and it's muggy. 
<laughs> Still doing good. Raining every day. Raining every day in yep. the afternoon. Yeah, pretty much. Year. Yeah, I have family down in Kissimmee and uh, Longwood, Florida, and uh, yeah, I know the weather pretty well down there. It's it's cool. Um, how's everything going uh, with your projects? You're making some incredible milk snakes. Oh, thank you, David. Actually, projects this year. Um, you know, I kind of laid off of. I didn't go for any really um, stellar animals or first of its kind. Um, next year is probably going to be the breakout year for a lot of the projects that I actually am working on. Um, considering I held back animals the past three years, they'll all be ready. Some of them will be ready to breed next year, and of course, a couple years after. So, it's uh, one of those, you know, wait and see with snakes. We got to wait three years. And uh, sometimes four, depending. But uh, So this year, I didn't produce a lot of, you know, uh, stellar animals. I mean, of course I produce stellar animals, but I'm talking about out-of-the-ordinary type animals. So it's been the basics of what I produced last year and the year before as well. Interesting. I just posted a, a link in the chat room of one of those incredible animals I was talking about. And uh, this one is... I don't think you have it labeled. It looks like, uh, oh, here it is. Yeah, it's a super striped root fins king snake. I mean, that that is not a natural occurring mutation, correct? Absolutely not. Actually, um, I, I'll give a little history on that. Lloyd Lemke went down and collected a male animal. And the last time I heard this male was actually still alive, I think it's 37 years or 38 years in the hobby, and it was collected as an adult. Anyway, he collected this animal and it's he still he alive. It you're saying? What? Yeah. Oh my God! Still alive. The last I heard, it was still alive. Huh. So yeah, sorry, sorry an, to interrupt you. An amazing animal. Anyway, Lloyd Lemke had bred it um, one year, and he started producing aberrant looking um, Ruthveni out of this animal. And when you bred the aberrants back together, they produce even more aberrant or somewhat striped where all the bands were fused together. And it was a few years of working on a project. He actually produced the super stripe. The project, you know, the project started many, many years ago. It really wasn't a big deal because the genetics of the project are still unknown to this day. Um, many will say it works codominant-wise. Some say it's hereditary. Um, in my personal breedings in the past five years of these animals, they, they, it's a hit or miss deal. So you can breed, you know, two animals that look normal and breed them together and produce striped animals. And, you know, it's nothing that you can actually pinpoint on any genetics. And I bred a super stripe or a stripe to a normal this year, and I got all normals. So it's one of those where you don't know what the genetics are and it's a hit or miss. So the actual genetics of the animal really never caught the mainstream, and that's why they're not produced a lot. Interesting. Well, James, before we get into more of your projects, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in herpiculture and uh, tell us uh, more about your operation and why you're focusing on, uh, on milk snakes and such. Started, you know, I started really being interested in snakes and lizards, turtles, frogs, and reptiles and amphibians in general, probably when I was about eight or nine years old. Um, I had asthma, and I couldn't be around any furry pets with four legs. 
just wouldn't work. And, of course, my parents, they weren't very fond of the cold-blooded type pets either. And at that point in time, um, you're talking the early 80s, they really weren't, you know, around. Some of my friends had garter snakes as pets that we caught or eastern hognose. And uh, when I got to about 17 years old and I was working, I was able to purchase my own. Um, that's what I did. And I, my first pair that I ever purchased was a pair of corn snakes. And it grew into, from corn snakes, I had leopard geckos, bearded dragons, pictus geckos. Um, of course, at that time, in the early late 80s, early 90s, milk snakes were um, pretty expensive. And uh, it wasn't until probably about the mid-90s when I really got interested in milk snakes. And then I took a break from the hobby for a while, but I still stayed, you know, buying magazines, going to pet stores, going to shows. I just wasn't keeping any animals. And when I finally decided that, you know, I had enough time to dedicate to keeping animals again, it was right about the time when most of the big-name colubrid breeders were changing out to ball pythons. And, of course, the prices of colubrids came down, and I thought to myself, I'm like, wow, you know, I, I could never buy these as a kid, and this is what I want. And that's what I did. And, you know, I bought a lot of old stock from a lot of older um, breeders that had switched over to ball pythons. And... Mm -hmm. um, that's where I sit today. And, of course, we have all the cool morphs. You know, I work with some of the morphs. But my main my main objective was keeping those old lines pure. Um, if so-and-so collected it, I wanted to make sure that it was, you know, from that locale. That that was pretty much, you know, where I wanted to range my, my collection around. So, in short, that's kind of mm -hmm. how I got interested in it and where I sit today. Nice, nice. Um, one of the things that I found incredible when I was coming in was the the fact that a lot of these normal, uh, so-called normal variations of of corn snakes and king snakes were so inexpensive. I mean, how can a really beautiful Mexican black king snake be worth only fifteen dollars? And how can uh, Arizona uh, milk snakes, just beautiful ones, be be selling for thirty bucks and forty dollars. Um, what are you What are you noticing about the uh, the pricing of these of these snakes? And do you think it's they're vastly underpriced? Which is my opinion. Well, you know, we'll take the Mexican black um, for example, and it's really not selling as low as that. Most of the time, you're going to see those for sale between fifty and sixty dollars. It's typically where it is. I mean, a pure black snake is probably one of the biggest sellers next to a pure white snake. Th those two, mm -hmm. for some reason, really catch the eye of many people, and they're typically, you know, the fastest sellers, and, you know, they bring in a decent amount, $50, $60. When it comes to corn snakes that, you know, could produce clutches of 30 animals, and uh, uh, upwards of 50, 55 animals per season when you double clutch them, you, you just have a lot of stock available. If you ever, in, in this day and age, the price of the animal is only what somebody's willing to pay for it. Um, and, right. you know, if it's somebody's willing to pay $15 for it, everybody thinks that's what the going rate is. Um, a lot of people 
that keep snakes keep a lot of snakes um, because we keep them in rack systems or, you know, we pretty much have a pinpoint down to we can keep so many per square foot and, you know, this is how much we produce and everything else. And it kind of is kind of shameful to me because it doesn't bring the quality of the snakes any better. It's all about how many can I produce. And um, mm-hmm. prices, you know, prices for colubrids were drastically cut back in the early 2000, about 2003, 2004. They were drastically cut. Of course, you know, 2007 when we had the economic downturn, that really hurt the colubrid market as well. Ball pythons were the one that kind of stayed stayed the course and, and, and kept the price and, and kind of bailed out, you know, snakes in general throughout the whole economic downturn. But mm-hmm. over the past year or so, we've seen the prices of these so-called inexpensive snakes actually on the increase. And oh, um, we see we see it at shows. We see it, you know, through wholesale lists um, and stuff like that. They're actually increasing. And, and, you know, perfect example would be, you know, corn snakes at one time in 2007 were wholesaling for five and six bucks. Um now I, I've seen places, uh, wholesalers buying from breeders that are paying upwards to 15 to $17. So, you know, there's more of an increase in people wanting them. And because so many adults were unloaded during the shift change between colubrids to ball pythons in the late 90s, early 2000s, when we saw that shift change in the snake market, um, a lot of the adults, you know, kind of left the market. Nobody was breeding them. There wasn't very many because there wasn't, you know, a lot of people interested in them. And and now there's, you know, lack of supply and more demand. Okay. So you, so you think that there is an increased demand in the snakes. Um, do you see any parts of the market that are seeing a decrease in demand from your perspective? Well, in the colubrid market, um, not particularly. You know, corn snakes have always been a stronghold and something I don't work with. Um, but, uh, you know, corn snakes have always been a stronghold in the colubrid market. And, you know, milk snakes, king snakes, you know, they always they always tend to be around. There, There's no main drivers in there, nothing like a hog nose, you know, that, that can draw the $1,000 or whatever, or, or even higher. Um, so I don't think there's any real one colubrid that outshines all the rest. I think it's the, it's the group as a whole. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's that's good to know. And I don't like to, to see markets on a decline. I definitely want to keep seeing things on an upswing. And I know with the, the economy out there, you know, people kind of panic sometimes and, you know, think the worst of things. Like, uh, you know, different times of the year just aren't good times for, you know, buying and selling animals. doesn't mean that you know, the market is drying up in any, you know, in any sense of the word. Um, one of the things that we're seeing a lot uh, today is auctions, animal auctions on Facebook. Do you, do you have an opinion about auctions, James? Actually, you know, I really don't have an opinion about auctions, and I kind of embrace them. I think Ben Siegel's auctions have really, you know, caught wind. He has, you know, a great following for his auctions. Um you know, I'm one to say that there is no price dollar on any animal. Um, I don't think my collection is worth such and such. I don't think, 
any animal I produce is more expensive than others. Um, mm -hmm. I do, because each animal should be taken care of the same way. Whether you pay $15 for it or $15,000 for it, it doesn't matter. It's still an animal. It still needs to be taken care of. So the price fluctuations in the market is only based on the people willing to buy. Um, of course, yes, I've had people call, you know, contact me and say, hey, wow, why would you sell that for that much? It should be going for this. Well, because that's what I feel it was worth. You know, and that's, you know, that's kind of, you know, each individual breeder's idea of what it's worth. I do a lot of research um, on the markets on what I breed. And, you know, like for two years I didn't breed hypo uh, melanistic Pueblo milk snakes. There was no demand for it. So why would I produce them? So I chose to give my females two years off. And mm -hmm. then all of a sudden, nobody had them. Everybody was contacting me. So the past two years, or the past year, I, I produced them. You know, once I fulfill the demand, then I kind of back off. Next year, I probably won't produce as many because there will be more people with them and there won't be as much demand. So, you know, as a breeder, you have to look at the ebb and flow of what people are interested in. And, you know, prices really, you know, the prices of the hypo problems, I didn't increase them any more than what I paid for them, you know, five or six years ago. So right. the price and the structure kind of stayed the same. It's just a supply and demand thing. And uh, breeders have to look at, look at that, you know. You don't want to overproduce something and flood the market and then sit on two or three clusters of animals and wonder why you're not selling them. You know, because last year you produced seven or eight clutches, you sold them to everybody that was interested, and now the interests are gone because these people are raising them up. So um, that's kind of how we we as breeders need to really look at the market. Right. And anybody that's coming into the market buying animals for breeding purposes um, will eventually be in a position where they're actually becoming a quote-unquote business where they have to learn how to market, learn how to um, become, you know, basically become a brand and promote their brand. And uh, what would you say to somebody that's thinking about investing in tricolors and uh, making a little business out of it? What would you, what would you say to what, them? Well, it's funny that you actually say that because this year, a few years ago, I sold some snakes to a, to a client, and he, contact, he, he actually produced snakes this year, and he contacted me, and he's like, hey, James, how do I market these things? How do I go about, you know, selling this offspring? And, you know, so to really walk through the steps, you know, each person is going to take their own ideas and market their animals their own way, whether it be by auctioning them off, whether it be by putting them on classified ads, whether it be by going to a show and putting them in deli cups. Everybody's going to find their own way to really market what animals they produce. But the best way to do it is to form, you know, a relationship. And I told him, I said, listen, you take great pictures. You know, you work on taking good pictures. Show your, your, your adults off. And I actually wrote a piece for ReptileApartment.com, and it's uh, five essentials to sell offspring. And I kind of walked through yep. how important each little essential item actually is when you're starting off. And, you know, treat each person, whether it's a person, you know, a 14-year-old at a show or a 35-year-old at a show with a big wad of money in his hand. You have to treat each person equally. 
And uh, yep. by doing so, you're going to, you know, your, conf- your business confidence is going to increase. And people are going to be like, hey, he's a good guy in the hobby. He, he produces great animals. He takes care of his stuff. You know, he's not afraid to show pictures. You know, and that's kind of how that goes. And everybody should, you know, will find their own little way. And you just have to, you know, try it. Try what you think may work. And be be unique about it, right? Uh, be original, I guess. Would be, Absolutely. Uh, good advice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm looking at and, the... Uh, Go ahead. And, and take things from other market areas. You know, like uh, infomercials. And, and I'm really surprised nobody's done this in the reptile world. Infomercials work great for selling products. But I don't see anybody doing any kind of funny infomercials or kind of sitcom infomercials on YouTube on selling animals. But, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, hey, it worked in other markets. Maybe it would work. Maybe it won't. Maybe somebody will think I'm stupid for doing it. But if you no, think that I way, you'll never, find, you'll never find your little niche in, in herpeticulture, you know, otherwise. Well, I think that's an excellent idea, and I think uh, one of our goals in herpetoculture is to expand herpetoculture, uh, and there's a lot of different ways we can do that. But, uh, you know, there's strength in numbers, and if we can expand it, that's what we need to do. And I think comedic commercials, in a sense, you know, media such as that and advertisements such as that is definitely a win. I mean, I I see it as a win all around. But um, absolutely. A- absolutely, right. and uh, got to be done tastefully too. Though I would think uh, we're gonna—I think we're gonna have some people being uh, creative in their own way, and it may not be uh, in such great taste either. But I guess it, it just comes with it, right? Well, well, of course, you're gonna have people try to, you know. Um, well, we see it too in in snakes, and I'm sure you probably see it in. in leopard geckos and geckos too as well. People that take pictures of animals in dirty cages or a dirty water bowl. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's an automatic turnoff. You don't want to promote your, your awesome animal that you're trying to sell with a dirty background or, or you know, a, a piece of a shed skin stuck to its head. And You know, mm-hmm. you have to look at the animal and, and you have to say, you know, this is what I'm presenting you. And, and respect the animal. And even in the commercials, even if it's comedic uh, skit-type commercial, you have to realize that it is an animal and you can't use it as a basketball or, you know, roll it around. You have to pay respect to the animal. But you can still make it fun. This uh, 50-50 California King Snake project of yours, I see that you're getting some black spotting in the white bands. What's, what's that about? Is that a genetic trait? Don't know. It's actually something that actually just popped up this year. And um, uh, a few of the other cow king breeders, like Doug Donnelly up in New York, um, he bought some of the offspring, and I have somebody else that bought some of the offspring. And they're going to continue working with it. Of course, I'll still pair it up. I'm not a huge cow king breeder. Um, It was just something I liked, uh, 50-50 black and white. They've always been one of my childhood favorites. Um, So... It was just something that popped up this year in the clutch. So, of course, I just handed it off to other calcing enthusiasts and, and let them see, and they'll be working with them. Um, one of the other calcing projects that I worked on this year was uh, the reverse wide stripe. kind of looks like the snake got run over by a tire. Um, let me take a look and see another, if I can find that one. That's another project oh, that yeah. I was working on. 
And, um, you know, that was kind of, I picked up some animals in, in a collection, and um, I, I, I was going to sell them, and I decided to hold on to them, at least breed them for a year to see what popped out. And, and I was kind of amazed. And it's another, it's another gene that um, quite don't know how it really works. So and um, so that's another project that's kind of being shifted to other cow king breeders throughout the United States to work with. That's cool. That's something I I find definitely appealing. Yeah, that's it's really cool. Now this uh, this other one, this hypomelanistic pueblum, is really it's really interesting. It's like a brownish color instead of black, right? I mean that's the, that's the yeah absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Basically, the black coloration um, has reduced uh, melanin in it, and, and it looks like a brown color when it's actually a baby. When it grows into mm-hmm. an adult, some of them could be like a silverish-gray color, and others will be more to a purplish-brown. So the, they won't hold that solid black like we see in normals, but they'll definitely have uh, a varying shade of either silver to like a purplish-brown. Wow. Yeah, that's nice. Now, James, you're not just doing uh, uh, king snakes and milk snakes. You're you're into all other different uh, aspects of herpetoculture. One one being cold blooded publishing. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what what you're doing over there with that? Yeah. Well, well, cold blooded publishing came about um, when Douglas Mong and I decided to write a Honduran book, and the Honduran book is um, basically. 40 years of history on Hondurans. We went back and talked to um, the likes of Louis Porras and uh, down at the shed and Bo Love and them importing and picking up wild-caught animals and Dave Doherty. And we kind of compiled all the history of all the morphs and pretty much all the lines. And um, we compiled it all into a big book. And, of course, we have Captive Care, you know, and purchasing kits, what to look for, how to sex. Um, so we, we put it all into a book, and it was kind of, you know, the history, the hobby history of the snakes. And Cold-Blooded Publishing is actually working with two other authors at this time, actually a couple more than two. Um, I think we're up to five other authors right now. should be looking at some other books coming out. And it's basically the books are going to be geared towards the hobby history of the species. So um, that's kind of where we're geared towards on cold-blooded publishing. Of course, we have some other aspects that we're working on. We have teamed up with John Taylor over at Herp House Magazine, and John and I are working on some incredible projects to bring herpeticulture through Herp House Mag, you know, the only um, digital herp magazine on the web as of now. Yes. So, um mm-hmm. We're working, Very good we're working on the. By the way. What's that? I said very very good magazine, by the way. Well well yeah. done by John. And yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we're working on that. And, of course, John also has the reptileapartment.com. And, you know, I've been working side by side with John, helping, you know, kind of really get that off the feet. John had, you know, some incredible ideas and, we we kind of saw eye to eye on where her pediculture should go, and um, it just kind of teamed off for the past year. And 
you know, it, it's incredible the amount of content and the amount of knowledge that is out there that needs to be put together in, in, in a few solid places and, and kept on hold. So um, it, it's just one of those areas with cold-blooded publishing that um, I feel that, you know, I want to provide other people with the knowledge, with the facts, you know. Mm-hmm. And that way they can, you know, when they see cold-blooded publishing and they see the logo, they know what type of book it is. Well, speaking of where herpetoculture uh, should go, and that's 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 like a big topic recently. And um, it, in a lot of ways it's uncertain in our future. And it's not just herpetoculture. It's in everything. A lot of things are uncertain. What do you? What is your opinion about uh, the direction of herpetoculture right now? And what do you, where do you think we're headed, and what do you think uh, we should be doing? Well, herpetoculture in, in general, I think, is growing by leaps and bounds, even continuing today. I think there's always some really new people coming in, and it takes the likes of uh, Brandon Fowler and Roaming Reptiles and Chris Law that go out and do educational and outreach programs that bring the people into us and, and bring the responsible people into us, and, and that needs to continue. And those outreach programs, um, reptiles in the classroom, all those things need to continue. And we need to support these guys and support the ones that go out and really, you know, go to birthday parties or do nature center talks or anything like that. And I I totally support everybody that does the outreach programs. Um, Any little bits of information to bring it to the general public, to, to change their minds about you know, snakes are bad, lizards are bad, cold-blooded is bad, whatever it may be. Um, but herpetoculture in general is really, it's really moving forward. We have some stumbling blocks that we need to really get over. And um, I, I was listening to you earlier, and you were talking about the fighting among us. Well, the fighting among us is always going to be there. But we all know that we have one solid goal at hand. And the problem being is, you know, that solid goal isn't at the importance of everybody. And, uh, you know, I don't, think you're, I don't think you're ever going to not have the fighting. I mean, here in the, I work in Clubridge. We constantly bicker back and forth about hybrids and pure <laughs> or hybrids <laughs> and locality. I mean, we constantly do it. It'll never change. It's been going on for 30 years. You know, it'll never change. It's just something that's normal with it. And some of us believe that, you know, we we should be keeping and breeding animals to look at what they actually are. Others want to make Frankenstein morphs. It's not going to change. But I can appreciate both. Well, some people can. And, uh, you know, and I'll kind of toss them a line. But there's, you know, there's an educational value in that argument, too, as well is, you know, instead of bashing somebody and calling names and and calling them, you know, dumb and stupid and you're an idiot for doing it, you need to sit them down and say, hey, listen, okay, don't mind, go ahead, breed the Frankenstein morse, but educate the people that you sell to so they know what they're buying, so they know what to tell their customers three, four, five years from now. Keep record-keeping really ingrained in 
you know, the snakes that you keep. So you can pass the records down. So if there ever comes comes a time when somebody thinks an animal is pure, they can back check it and trace it back and call the person up and say, hey, did you breed this with this? Oh, yeah, I did. So Mm -hmm. I really, you know, I really like to see a lot of record keeping come back in herpetoculture. It's kind of been lost through the way. Um, a lot of the old school guys used to really take, keep really good record keeping. So, you know, I'd like to see that happen. And I'm only talking from experience in the Cluebird market, but record keeping is definitely a, a hot topic for me. Okay, yeah, with leopard geckos, and that's my primary focus, we have the same issue with the purity concern. And, uh, you know, there is a lot of, I mean, with leopard geckos, it's a genetic chess game, and a lot of, uh, breeders in the past did a lot of mixing to not only prove out genetics, but also to create the different morphs that we have. And, you know, there's speculation on, you know, who did what and, you know, did, was this mixed in there? And, you know, we have three different albino strains. So, you know, do some of these leopard geckos have more than one albino strain in them? And, of course, yes, some of them have proved to be uh, head for multiple albinos, and that's an undesirable thing in the leopard gecko world. Um some of us feel like some of these morphs are just too, it's going to be, in order to deconstruct them at this point, would be a colossal undertaking. And we're seeing a big trend where uh, people are beginning to invest and appreciate the wild types more because they're they're inherently, you know, void of uh, hidden recessives that we know of. And um, do, do you see that kind of a trend happening with, with snakes at all? Absolutely. Absolutely. Really? And, and I've seen it over the past couple of years that natural mm-hmm. phenotypes have become more and more um, the favorite than uh, the multi-morphs or the single morphs. And even single mm-hmm. morphs. I mean, going back and trying to find a, a melanistic corn snake from the original that was collected back in the 50s, I mean, you can't find one. And so yeah. if it was ever being able to be found, you know, it would be great. But even, you know, the the natural phenotypes have really picked up, especially in milk snakes. Um, you just can't, to me, you just can't recreate something that, you know, it has been out there in the wild. When you put it out in the grass and you take a picture of it, it's like flipping that rock. You see a total different beauty in it. No, I do enjoy the morphs as well. I mean, I do enjoy T-positives and hypos and hypoerthoristics and ghosts and lavenders. Those are all great. But most of my collection is all het for that stuff. And because uh, I like the natural look to the animal. So I keep mm-hmm. the hets and I'm able to produce a wider range of animals for my clients. Some will like the morphs, some won't. Yes, and with corn snakes today, it's like people don't even know what they have at the time in a lot of cases, right? Like, like weird stuff pops out, and because they're oh, so expensive in a lot of cases, right? I mean, I think that people that are investing in corn snakes, corn snakes are eventually going to see the trend that is happening with leopard geckos, where people are going to be seeking out these uh, guaranteed bloodlines that are only head email, for, for instance, or only uh, you know pure snow. Uh, corns and ghost corns. James, do you remember the color guide to corn snakes when you were a kid, that book? I do. I do. Okay. 
My, I, one of my I favorite. I actually books. have one in the rack still. Of course, right now in the in the very last page, you're gonna. I'm sure you'll remember that incredible ghost corn that had the yellow, yellowish sides, but it was it was gray and dark gray. I mean, it was perfect. You know what I'm talking about? That last picture yep. in the book. All right, I do. I have never seen a ghost corn like that for sale anywhere. Have you? Oh yeah. And actually, you see, see the problem is with that, with the yellowing of the ghost corn, it doesn't come in until later on in life. So usually, typically, the snake has to be two years old and more more like three to five if you want to see what its true adult colors are. So with snake, mm-hmm. it's a long time to really see, you know, the true colors. I mean, I produce Pueblo and milk snakes from the Zapotitlan Basin, and they are the most cleanest-looking babies. But when they become adults, they're the ugliest-looking snakes you'll ever see in your life. But the babies are so clean, so crisp, so white. But because they get older, they they create in this white area, they create what we call in the Kluber hobby, in, in Kluber section, as a newspaper print. And, and all it is is just a bunch of melanin that tips up inside the white, white scales. So they right. turn into this dull, like spray-painted black snake, um, but they're great. I mean, it, it, even even those newspaper prints is what I enjoy because it's something that, you know, when I open up that tub or I pull that snake out, I'm like, wow, this is what I would find in the wild. This would be, you know, something that if I was down there, I'd see it crossing the road. So that's kind of what I enjoy. You know, we see so many different types of king snakes and corn snakes being bred today. And I'm talking about the natural ones. And and we see them worse. But out of all of these different species that I see, there is one species that is just inherently lacking in the trade, and that is which one of the ones that I think is the most beautiful is the eastern milk snake. And why is that? Why is that? And, and I'll tell you another species I don't see at all, mole king snakes. Well, why don't we see these being worked with in any uh, capacity, really? Well, for one, we'll touch we'll touch on the eastern milk snake. Um, for one, the eastern milk snake, you know, they lay small clutches. They only lay maybe six eggs. Sometimes you'll get eight to ten, but typically, you know, you're getting three to six eggs. So that's one of the issues. The other issue is, you know, it kind of resembles a corn snake, except it's not as colorful. So you really don't draw in the interest because typically it's the dull browns to the blackish colors. It's just really a dull-looking snake. Unless you start going into, you know, west into the Spilla Range or Red Milk Range where the saddles are a lot more deeper red. Or if you get into Kentucky, um, you'll see a lot more red in the saddles. Um, But they're really, you know, they're really small eggs. They're small clutches, and the babies can be hard to get feeding. A lot of times you have to tail, take a mouse tail and feed them for months before they're able to get pinkies. So, you know, that's why we don't see a lot of those available. And that's the same thing that goes with mole kings. You know, you don't see a lot because it takes so much effort for a breeder to get these babies to a size to be able to sell on the open market. So really, they're available, but you never see them online because they're a lot of people will only buy them, you know, 
um, because they're they're worth the time. They want to put the time into it. Um, Eastern milks, Eastern milks may come around in the next few years. They have a few morphs out now. Um, oh really? So yeah, there's a few morphs being worked on, and um, so we may start to see a little bit more of the Eastern milks come about, and you know that that may we may see more people breeding them. What kind of morphs do they have work in the works with those? Well, right now, um, for the past few years, there, uh, there was an amelanistic form found. So um, I think in Pennsylvania, not Pennsylvania, um, can't remember where the guy lives. But anyway, there's an amelanistic form, and then there's an anatheristic form, and then more recently there's a T-positive form. Oh wow! Those three forms, those three forms will actually probably bring that eastern milk market more to a um, hobby level, where there'll be more interest involved into it. Um, now, as pattern goes, there's not very many morphs that I know of pattern-wise. There's been a few striped or partially aberrant striped um, eastern milks available, and um, mm-hmm. so we'll have to see how those pan out as well. Interesting. And you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, pure white snakes and pure black snakes seem to be, you know, the the biggest sellers or the most, you know, eye-catching for some people. And I would happen to agree with that, especially, in my opinion, um, what really appeals to me are leucistics, like uh, the black-eyed leucistic balls, the blue-eyed leucistic ball pythons. And, uh, of course, they call it the poor man's Lucy, which is the leucistic... Uh, Texas rat snake, and which I have several of here. I just I adore them, and they're all pretty much nasty and nippy little snakes. But um, the, just the the look of them and how they how clean they look, and some of them have normal rat snake eyes that are you know streamlined, and other tex- leucistic Texas eyes bulging out of their head like crazy. Now, and a lot of people find that undesirable. In fact, some breeders have told me that. When that happens, they usually, you know, put those, you know, put those down and don't even keep them. But I happen to find them amazing when their eyes, eyes bulge out like that. Um, what do you know about that that effect, and why is that happening in some and not others? Well, the bulging eyes on leucistic Texas rats. I mean, it was kind of way back in the day when leucistic Texas rats came about. Um, it was just common. Almost every leucistic Texas rat at that time had a bulging eye to it, whether it was inbred or whether it was just a genetic part of the leucism, leucism in the snake. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's where that panned out. When the leucistic snakes were actually outcrossed a little bit more, we didn't see as much of the bulging eyes. And that's pretty much where everybody was working towards. So, you know, over the course of the past two decades, everybody's been working towards, you know, a normal eye leucistic. But from what I remember back in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, those leucistic Texas rats always had bulging eyes. And back in those mm-hmm. days, we didn't even have the pink eye leucistics, which are actually amelanistic and leucistic snakes. So yeah. um, we didn't even have those. So the outcross, breeders have done it, you know, over the course of the past 20 years to really provide, you know, a better-looking Texas leucistic rat snake. Um, yeah, so, I, have a, I have a pink eye here, too. Beautiful. And, and te- you know, 
Texas uh, rat snakes have notoriously been, you know, one of your more nippy rat snakes, as you would say, and you know, but they are, you know, they can grow. They can grow. I've seen six six footers, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I, I have a picture on file of almost a seven footer. So they can wow. grow very large. They're very large snakes, and, and concerned is in a colubrid, you know, but uh, beautiful in their own right. I mean, I owned a pair of leucistics many, many years ago, and uh, mm-hmm. um, until I decided to strictly work with tricolor snakes, whether milk snakes or uh, king snakes. But, you know, it, you just don't know whether it's a genetic hitch on the um, coloration or mm-hmm. if it's something, you know, because of being inbred. And I think it was just a genetic hitch. Um, a few years ago, I think six or seven years ago, there was another leucistic Texas rat found in Mineral Wells, Texas. And um, so that line doesn't have any bulging eyes. So wow. that should be another so reason why we lines? don't see as many bulging eyes on leucistics either. So there's two different lines of leucistics that are not compatible genetically? Well, I, I can't quote me on the genetic compatibility. I would imagine they would possibly be on the same LL, so they would actually be genetically, this, you know, produce the same. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know of anybody that has bred the old leucistic line into the mineral wells yet, but I can double-check into that and give you an answer. Yeah, I was, I, that's something I'd really be interested in because um, I find them fascinating snakes. And, and in addition to those, I'm really seeing a big trend towards uh, the scaleless rat snakes. And um, do you guys see any kind of scaleless uh, snakes occurring with the kings and the milks yet? Um, I haven't heard of any. I, I haven't heard of any scaleless um milk snakes or king snakes at this point. I know there's some scaleless uh, patophis. Um, uh, I think gopher. Um, I think Brian Barczyk actually had it or still has it. Um, But in kings and milks, we haven't seen any any, um, scaleless yet. Okay. Yeah, that's that's, that's really interesting because I've seen at shows scaleless leucistic Texas rat snakes, and it's, it's it's hard to distinguish them from the other ones because they're kind of just pure pinkish white when they're younger. Uh, and, you know, the genetic chess game player that I am thinks, well, is there a way to make a pure black scaleless to complement the pure white scaleless? Um, and is that possible to get, you know, a pure black well, I mean, point by outcrossing? Oh, yeah. I mean, anything's possible at this point. I mean, if you're going to make a, a fully black um, snake, I'm sure if the scaleless gene is anywhere in the Mexican black king snake or, you know, the black king snake, if it ever pops up, you'll be able to make a pure black one. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. think there's any reason why not. But, um, you know, it could also pop up in, in, you know, the black milk snake as well. So, you know, the black milk snake, we've had very little... Um, gene flow in the hobby. There's only been a few genes, a few adult animals that have been brought in and in, are in the gene, and we've been working with them for about 25 years. And um, so in the course of that time, we're still kind of young in that. And, and, you know, 
as gene flow goes through, we may see some oddballs pop up. So it, it's a huge possibility. Interesting. And I'm I'm really just amazed at all the things that keep occurring with, with, with uh, king snakes, milk snakes, and corn snakes. And one of those being these hybrids. I know some people do not like the hybrids. When I was a kid, we had the jungle corns. We had the gopher corns, as you know. And uh, that was pretty much it that I remember. But now... Um, it seems like you can mix a, a king snake with any with any other type of corn snake. You can mix, uh, uh, you know, milk snakes and stu- such with corns. And, and from what I'm seeing or hearing, um, what do you know about those crazy inbreds that are sometimes three different combos that are um, and they're also uh, breedable. They're not sterile uh, hybrids, too. You know, right? Exactly. They're not sterile. Um, and, you know, I'm not a big hybrid fan. I, don't get me wrong. Some of them are the most beautiful snakes that could possibly be on the face of this earth. I, I just mm-hmm. personally don't feel the obligated territory to step into that realm. Um, mm-hmm. But as far as those go, I mean, like you said, creamsicle corns were probably the first hy- one of the first hybrids ever bred, you know, in right. bluebreds. Because we we took an albino corn snake and bred it to a Great Plains rat snake. So that was kind of the first mm-hmm. hybrid, and it, and it was a test. It was a test to see if, you know, the gene flow would continue. And and it, it evolved, like you said. And then we had um, the jungle corns, which is a cow king and corn snake mix. And then we had the turbo corns, which was, you know, a, a pit and a corn snake mix. So now we kind of have pretty much everything underneath the sun. You know, we've borrowed genes and colubrids from other sources and brought them into tricolors. We've brought them into um, uh, variable kings. We brought them into, you know, pueblins. We, we've borrowed these um, morph genes from other sources to create new animals. And, you know, none of them are sterile. My main concern, and, you know, it's maybe something that the hybrid breeders really you know, have a better outlook on. But my main concern would be, you know, if you took a cow king who produces very large eggs on a typical basis, their eggs are fairly large. I had a clutch of eggs that were almost the size of extra large chicken eggs. So for a colubrid, they are large. And if I breed that cow king with my Pueblo and milk snake who typically lays very small eggs, those offspring, when I breed them together the egg sizes change. And I just have a feeling that some of the hybrids, you know, because they have different mixes, we could see an increase of egg binding because of the the size of the eggs. It's mm-hmm. only a, a theory right now, but we've had seen an increase of egg binding within the colubrid market and some of the new, new guys coming in. And it, I'm wondering if that's because some of the, the snakes that they buy at the pet store or they buy have other genes in them, or it could be just simple <clears throat> husbandry. So, you know, it's just not something that you can ever pinpoint, but it's something that I keep an eye, eye on. Right. Well, that's that's responsible. And, uh, you know, James, we can go into a little bit of overtime if you like, but I do want to ask you um, if, if you have an opinion or if you'd like to voice an opinion on some of the current events of the week with the, the PJAC uh, move. Uh, if not, that's okay, too. 
Well, actually, I'll touch on it a little bit. And uh, I actually wrote an article for reptileapartment.com and published it Saturday morning with the help of John Taylor. Um, anybody want to go check it out? It has has my opinion in it. Um, I've caught some backlash from it. And, oh, uh, yeah, that I should want, be expected, right? I mean, and I just want to, want to point out that in no way has my opinion meant to harm her pediculture like many think. My question is, I just want the truth. I want to know who I support and what they support. And um, that's the thing, and that's what everybody should ask. I'm not the type of person to sit back and wait. Sorry. I'm not going to sit back and wait until everything's so bad that nothing can be done anymore. And um, so the current events, I dislike the hiring of Ed Sayers. I dislike it. I think he's, you know, not a credible person. And, you know, in the article I put six items that I felt discredited Ed Sarris for the position. So, you know, I support U.S. ARC. That's who I support. I support their efforts. I support, I've supported them throughout all my years since they were created. I've supported U.S. ARC. I've donated animals to all their auctions at Daytona. So I've supported U.S. ARC, and I'll continue to support U.S. ARC. But I'm not one to sit back and not ask questions. So, you know, as we see the the world turn, so to speak, you know, I want to know. Because if the organization that I support supports an organization that supports somebody I don't like, I may not support them anymore. And that's so the, and if that's USR continues yeah. to be an ally with PJAC, I'll have to make a decision. And in my mm-hmm. article, as of right now, I'm not supporting either one. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not because I'm not supporting the efforts of USARC or anybody else in the legislative part of her pediculture. I support anything that deems important to the hobby. But and James, you always you have know, to question something. Exactly. And I, 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 have the, uh, I have the drive of a Fox Mulder myself where I want to get to the truth. And I, I also I want to believe in the good of people. And I want to believe in the good of some of the organizations. I also understand, and I'm sure as well you're a smart guy too, you understand that um, with anything that gains momentum in society, with anything that changes uh, the norm or conflicts with others' agendas, there comes a time. There comes a time when it, it's going to be under attack or, or scrutinized, and, and at that point, it becomes a very complicated legal struggle. And you know, sometimes things behind the scenes, backdoor deals, things like that, will need to be done just to preserve, you know, the original goal, so to speak, and. Who are we to know what's really going on out there? And maybe for all we know, you know, this is this this is the thing that's going to save the hobby. We just don't know all the all the ins and outs. I think, but I mean, there is some good information out there. I mean, what do you think about that? Oh, absolutely. And um, you know, here's the thing: we'll always fight a fight. I mean, it's been going yeah. on for for centuries. There's always been a fight. You know, mm-hmm. herpetoculture is never going to be saved 100%. There, we're always going to be under attack by somebody. It's just right. how do we do it in a way 
that it makes everybody happy. There's always going to be somebody that doesn't like it. You know, I may not like. I may not like. You know, the way one person breeds their snakes. Like I don't like hybrids. You know, but Mm -hmm. I don't go out 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 of my way to backlash these people and tell them what an idiot they are. That's what they choose to do. That's who they are. They have the right and the will to do it as long as they do it responsibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to to name call, to blacklist, to throw rumors around is just beyond getting to the point. Why? Because somebody stands up for what they believe in, you know, and, you know, that should draw more respect than anything is, hey, I'll put my opinion out there. I'm not going to sit back. Here's my opinion on it. Here's what I found. You know, I did the fact check for the article that John and I wrote. I fact checked everything that was written in that article. And I had PMs stating that it was untrue. But it was fact checked. So, I know. you know, it, it's one of those things that, you know, hey, it is what it is. Is this the turning point? Maybe. Probably not. But it's going to open the doors for other people with other ideas to come forward to help out. You know, you don't have to always believe in one single organization. You can believe in multiple organizations that help out the cause. You know, so if the cause is to really, you know, look forward, because here's what I'm afraid of. And this is going years out, and this is what I'm afraid of, and this is what I've talked to many colleagues over the past 48 hours about. I'm afraid of being regulated by the government and the USDA instead of being regulated by our peers. I don't want the government right. coming in my house telling me what I can and cannot do. If I believe a corn snake does better feeding in a deli cup, but because the government doesn't feel that that is responsible, I am now animal cruelty? Yeah. That's not true. I know. Right. So... That's what I'm afraid of. In each species that we work with, with reptiles, each one has their own little niche in the world. So each one can have a special care. So there is no generalization of caring for these animals. You can't generalize it. Some of my milk snakes, they do better in shorter cages, smaller cages. Other ones, they like the roam. So it's not only just the species, it's also the individual animal. And that's responsible keeping. Right. I would agree with you on that, too. Well, James, we are at the end of the show now, and uh, I just want to thank you very much for coming on tonight. It was really great. Oh, thanks for having me, David. Yeah, it was a lot of fun talking about uh, your projects. We don't, this is the first time we actually devoted a segment to milk snakes and king snakes and uh, I, I think you're working on some incredible things, so I hope that your projects go really well for you uh, this year and all the others that you're still working on them. And uh, just so you know, you have an open invitation to come on the show anytime. And uh, at this point, James, if you want to leave our guests with any closing remarks, uh, please do so. All I want to say to Gecko Nation, Herp Nation, Reptile Nation out there is listen. Do your homework. Read what you can. And write down questions and ask those questions because no question is a stupid question. You're going to have backlash on everything. 
So getting that out of the way, go ahead and check out my Facebook fan page, facebook.com forward slash Tremendous Tricolors, and you can see what David and I talked about all night. I usually post pictures every couple days, so there's always some new stuff. And uh, other than that, happy herping. Awesome. All right, James, uh, stay in touch. I'll, I'll talk to you soon, but thank you. All right. Take care, Dave. All right. Have a good night. All right, folks, uh, awesome show. Got a lot of information out there. Um, check out the outro. I'll come back with my closing remarks and then play an awesome song. Gecko Nation Radio is a David Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. The jazz music you heard tonight was generously donated and created by Jeremy Turgeon of J&D Reptiles. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for the great musical pieces. You can check out Jeremy at J&D Reptiles on YouTube and on Facebook. And a very special thank you to our news anchor, graphic designer, and audio tech, Steve Barker. All the graphics, audio sponsor plugs, and music overlays were assembled by Steve. Check out Steve on YouTube at BC Barker Creations. He has some terrific videos for the herb community with amazing geckos and snakes. Please support the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance and U.S. ARC. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to support both of these organizations. Please donate to U.S. ARC so that they have the funds needed to legally protect pet owners' rights nationwide. You can donate to the U.S. ARC Legal Defense Fund at www.usarc.org. If you would also like to learn about advocacy and how you can take action on a state and local level, please subscribe to the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance newsletter and blog at www.usherp.org. That's right, folks. If you're going to get in the fight, get in and also do your homework beforehand so you know what you want to fight for and which, uh, which topics you resonate with. Um, my closing remarks are this. Uh, tonight's show, you heard a lot of different uh, passionate people talk about uh, current events, okay? Um, it's up to you guys to form your own opinions on what's going on, but make sure your opinions are educated opinions, okay? Do your homework. Everybody that spoke tonight is speaking from their heart, all right? They, uh, they believe strongly in what they're, they're talking about, and it's a, it was factual, okay? So there's more facts, though, and there's always two sides to a story, and uh, you know, you've got to be able to hear them both and understand them both and try to put yourself in other people's shoes. A lot of us today don't take a minute to understand why others do things or say things. You have to try to uh, remove yourself from the situation, put yourself in, a different, in that person's shoes, and try, well, maybe they're feeling this way because of this. Maybe they're feeling this way because they have been through that, okay? And uh, if we try to do that, we'll understand each other a lot better, and everybody's opinion won't feel like an attack on ours, okay? Uh, you know, if we get to the point where we understand that everybody's going to have a slightly different opinion than ours, and some may resonate with us, and some not, may not, okay? And understanding that that's always going to be there and not seeing that as a challenge to start an argument every, every chance is something that I think we need to... Um, come together and agree on. But I want to thank everybody for listening to the show tonight. I think we got some great information out and uh, look forward to next week's show. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors, the Ellsbearded Dragons. Check out the Ellsbearded Dragons.com. They're on, um, they're on 
Facebook, of course. They're at all the Northeast shows. They're also now selling FlexWatt heat tape on Amazon. FlexWatt is, of course, the inventor of heat tape and the safest heat tape. Watch out for knockoffs out there. Only trust FlexWatt. It's made by Calorie. It doesn't say made in the USA. It is not FlexWatt heat tape. All right, avdragons.com is the best supplier of Juvia Roaches. Use the code GECKO at checkout for 5% off. That code is good all the time. Geckoboa.com is the best source for wild type leopard geckos and subspecies in the U.S. Also has amazing bells, white and yellows, and incredible tangerines. Check out Geckoboa.com. Supreme Gecko is Wally Kern. Has amazing gay geckos, crested geckos, and food and supplies for them as well. Even, even has some very obscure species if you're interested in those. Check out SupremeGecko.com. I like to commend Wally for a lot of the good things that he does for the community. Uh, of course, OhioGecko.com is run by Thad Unkefer. He's also the owner of GeckoForums.net. That's the place to go if you are a gecko fan uh, or gecko addict like some of us like to refer to ourselves as. So check out GeckoForums.net and OhioGecko.com. OhioGecko has amazing tangerines, snows, fat tails, unique forks and fat tails like the Starburst, and uh, just incredible stuff. So check out his work. Um, of course, the great Ron Tremper. You don't know, if you're into leopard geckos, you know who Ron is. Check out Ron Tremper at leopardgecko.com to see where morphs are made. Uh, see, giantleopardgecko.com with Keith Kiggins. He's also giving a discount to the end of September. Use the code GNR2000. 14, and uh, any of his available leopard geckos. Amazing stuff. All right. And, of course, Daryl Burton. Daryl and Cade Burton from Longhorn Geckos is a father and son team with amazing special morphs, all the top high-end stuff, such as Super Tangelos, uh, White and Yellows, and some wild types such as Anger Manu are in the works. All right. Check them out on Facebook at Longhorn Geckos with a website coming soon. And if you have to feed all these insect-eating reptiles, you, of course, want to use the best insect that you can find at the best price. Well, that's rainbowmealworms.net. They're the biggest worm farm in the world. Check out Rainbow Mealworms and uh, give them a shot. You will not be disappointed. And, of course, you are what you eat. So in order to feed your, in, in order to feed your reptiles the most tr- nutritious insect, you have to gut load those insects appropriately with the best food. Well, the best food is MS2 Premium Chow. So check out MS2 Premium Chow at uh, MS2ENT uh, at Weebly.com. And, of course, it can be purchased at Rainbow Mealworms. All right, folks, and uh, that's it for our sponsors for tonight. I'm going to close up shop here and bid everybody a fine farewell. And I just want to thank everybody for supporting the show, keeping us going. It's uh, without the fans and uh, the support, uh, well, it wouldn't be as fun, but I'd still be doing it. All right. Uh, Gecko Nation Radio is a global success and growing every day, and it's all because of you guys. So uh, here's a song that gives me a little bit of a chuckle. It's an oldie, but a goodie, and uh, Daryl will like it. He's, uh, he and I were talking about it, and it kind of goes with, uh, with what we're doing here. You ain't seen nothing yet. Take care, folks. <laughs>